Take your Bibles this morning and open them with me to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. It is um, towards the end of your New Testament, one of the larger books towards the end of your New Testament. If you have gone to Revelation, you've gone too far, back up. If you went to Matthew, you're not quite there yet, keep going. It's towards the back end. And let me just kind of do a little bit of a um, plug here. On Monday nights at 6 p.m., we have a discipleship time. Uh, The women are going through a book right now called Well-Versed. You are more than welcome to attend that. And the men are actually going through the book of Hebrews. So as we uh, open this tonight and you see a little bit of how the author writes this letter and the contents of this letter, maybe it'll spark something within you to join us on Mondays at 6 Uh, to jump into this letter. Last week we had a great evening of looking at the first four verses of Hebrews 1, and then tomorrow night uh, hopefully we can get through the rest of the first chapter. So if you can, make it back tomorrow night at 6 to go through the book of Hebrews, and then the women to go through applying Scripture to life's current issues. But this morning we will find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 4 in a very familiar and popular passage of Scripture. No doubt you will know this passage that we're looking at. Now let me just say um, and kind of expose what my desire has been the last several weeks. I have wanted to lay before you a picture of Christ that reveals His heart, His goodness, and His love and patience towards us who are His children and yet who are still sinners. And so I've, I've wanted to show you how God relates to us who are forgiven, yet still struggling with sin. How does God interact with us? What does God think of us? Uh, What's God's heart towards us? And so I've wanted to lay that out before you in the best way that I can. Last week, we looked at the fact that God loves to evangelize sinners, doesn't He? He wants sinners to come to faith in Him, to be saved, to believe. And He even commissions those of us who are now Christians to do that work with Him. A few weeks ago, ago, about three, we looked at a passage in Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1, 2, and 3. And we looked at what that passage calls the Lord's chosen servant. And we saw how Christ is the comfort for those who are struggling and in despair. Those who are in troubling times, Christ is our comfort, our solution. And I began asking a question at the beginning of that sermon. I asked you, where do you turn for comfort when you're in the midst of difficulty and when your faith is even small? And I said that that question reveals a lot about us, reveals what we think about God, reveals what we place as priorities in our lives. So where do you turn for comfort? And like I said, I maintain that we turn to uh, Christ because in that passage, Isaiah 42, it says, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick He will not quench. We have a God who is tender towards us, compassionate towards us, who is gentle with us, isn't He? When we're in moments of despair, of distress, when we are even in the midst of the consequences of our own sin and our hearts are wrought with anguish, we have a gentle, tender, merciful God. A bruised reed He doesn't break and a faintly burning wake He doesn't quench. And so Christ is our only 
true source of comfort in troubling times. No idol that this world fashions will ever be our solution for true and lasting help and comfort other than Christ. Now this morning, I want to begin by asking you a very similar question to that. Closely associated, uh, in the same category, and yet distinct. And this question is also equally revealing to us. And the question is this, where do you turn for help? We know where to turn for comfort, that's Christ. Where do we turn for our help? And I will assume that most of us, if not all of us, know the answer to this question, right? In our minds, in our theology, our doctrine, we know the answer to be Jesus. But practically speaking, we struggle with this. Where we turn to for help. What is our first response in life? If you're going to honestly examine your own heart and your mind right now, what is your first response in life when you are going through a difficulty or struggling with sin? Where do you go for help? What do you turn to? Where do you go for assistance? Because the believer's great desire in this life should be to be holy and to be obedient, to be pure, and to be pleasing to the Lord. Those are things that we should want to possess and be in this life for God. And yet, we are hindered in our lives still by things like sin, by things like the circumstances around us that cause us to doubt God. We're still hindered in our walk with the choices that we make in this life that are far less than wise or even biblical choices. And that list is really infinitely long. And so when you are practically found in the middle of the mess, in the center of a very bad place, where do you go to help you in holiness? What do you do to help you in purity? What do you do to help you in wisdom and in obedience and in pleasing the Lord in this life. In fact, let me be a little bit more specific in my questions. When you are in the midst of a continual besetting sin, where do you turn for help? When you're constantly struggling with the same sin, failing over and over and over, what's your help in this life? When you are experiencing health that is less than perfect, that is bad and you begin to question God question God's goodness and God's provision where do you turn for help then where do you turn for help when your parents divorce some of you know that experience where do you turn for help when your children wreck their lives and when your own life is at its worst and you wonder if God even cares about you you ask the the same question the disciples did when they were in the boat during the storm. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Or do you turn for help when you are asking, Lord, don't you care? Or do you turn when there seems to be no answers? God doesn't seem to be near. You seem to be condemned by the guilt and shame of your own sin. Where do you go? Like I said, mentally we know the answer where we should go. Practically speaking... It's against our sinful instincts to go to run to a holy God when we're covered in sin, isn't it? <clears throat> to run to a holy God when we have messed up our own lives. That's difficult. But I think it's important that we visit this passage and we ask these questions because every day Christians are persuaded that the answer 
to life's difficulties and the answer to life's failures and life's sins is some kind of solution that the world can fashion as a quick and instant fix. Every day we're, we're bombarded with those sales pitches to find your help here and there, to, to turn to a friend for help or a, a counselor for help or a psychologist for help or even now in the society we live in, turn to whatever makes you feel good. That'll help you. Whatever has scientific reasoning or scientific evidence, that's going to be your solution in times of difficulty, not the values of religion or specifically Christianity. And so every day we're persuaded as Christians to abandon what we know to be true about Christ helping us and turn to some other solution that will be a quick and instant fix in our lives. I believe we've entered a phase in human history where even sincere believers are persuaded to run after everything else except for Jesus. And if they run for Jesus, it's usually the last resort. I'll try everything I can to fix my problem, and if that doesn't work, then I'll pray. Then I'll seek counsel from godly men and women. I would even say that if we're being honest, when we fail when we're in sin or when we're enduring great difficulty, we're more apt to believe that God must be disappointed with us and God must be sending some kind of judgment upon us instead of Him being there to help us or bring us along in the faith. That's most certainly the predominant view in society, isn't it? God's disappointed with the weaknesses of humanity and He's willing and ready to cast His judgment out without a moment's hesitation. That's what the world thinks of our God. And truth be told, that's what so many Christians fall into thinking. I have to fix myself up and I have to cleanse myself and I have to do a lot of good things before I can begin to approach God for guidance or help. And yet, we need to know, church, that it is a sign of Christian maturity for our first response to be to run to Christ in the midst of sin. And when we endure great difficulty, it is a sign of Christian maturity that our first response would be to run to Christ in prayer, to run to Christ in Bible study, to run to Christ in the accountability of the body of the church. That is where we find help, running to Jesus. And let's admit right at the onset that's hard, isn't it? Not many of us relish in confessing our sins to a holy God. Not many of us would relish in opening Scripture that cuts us to the core and exposes our wickedness so readily. And certainly nobody in here wants to confess their sins to the body, the church, to find help. And yet that is the mature response. Because that is the only place we can find help. It's the only place we can find help to overcome sin and distresses in our lives. And I hope this morning to lay out a picture of Christ. In fact, I hope to just Point your attention to a passage where the writer of Hebrews lays out a picture of Christ as a loving and a helping Lord who is just longing to jump into the muck and mire of our sin with us to bring us out of it. In fact, I hope that you will see a Lord this morning who longs to extend His hand of grace to help us grow into maturity, to set us free from the captivity of sin, to help us to live an abundant life in Him that's still joyous and at rest and at peace even with the weight of life's burdens 
truth be told, believers can't actually face the difficulties of this life, can't actually overcome their sin in this life through Christ in joy and in peace and in courage, can't they? Some of us have those testimonies. So this morning, I want you to see from Hebrews chapter 4 that we don't only have a Savior that comforts, we have a Savior that helps us. A Savior that longs to be involved with us and longs to carry us along and nurture us along like children. That's what we will find in Hebrews chapter 4. So let's read the passage this morning and then briefly walk through it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. You no doubt know this passage. Some of you may even have it memorized. I hope just to remind you of it this morning. Verse 14, the writer writes and says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have described it before as a great high priest. And the first thing we learn about our great high priest in verse 14 is that he is a saving high priest. He's a high priest who saves. In fact, we could say he is only a helping savior insofar as he is a savior at all. So he's only a savior or a helper. He only helps those whom he has already saved. He can only help those whom he can save. The very fact that Christ has extended salvation to us should show us the desire that He has to set us free from the very patterns of sin in our own lives, right? That's the Gospel, that Christ has come to save us, and not only to save us, but to change us from what we were apart from Him to who we will be in Him. That's, that's our foundation. That's the Gospel. We're being changed from one degree of glory to the next, we're being sanctified, we're being made complete in Christ. He takes those who are dead in their sins and rebellious by nature, and He changes them from being enemies to being children. We're something new, we're a new creation by that salvation. And in this passage, verse 14, that's what the writer of Hebrews calls us to hold on to. You notice there at the end of verse 14, he says, let us hold fast to our confession. That confession of the Gospel. That confession of Christ. That we are saved by His grace through faith in Him. And we are changed from what we once were to who we now are in Him. And who we will be in Him in glory. We're different. Hold that confession, he says. Grip it in your hands. Faithfully and steadfastly hold it close. The confession that we have in Christ. The faith we have in Christ. The confession of Christ as a Savior. Why hold that confession? Because it's our only hope, isn't it? To deny that, that confession, to deny that faith, to deny Christ as Savior is fatal. So hold this confession. That is His ultimate goal for His audience. These Jewish believers now, whom He's writing to, who the letter is sent to, His goal is to get them to hold fast 
to their confession of Christ and not returning back to Judaism. It's still the same message for us today. Hold fast to the confession and faith you have in Christ now and don't revert back to how you used to live in the world. So don't go back to the idols the world fashions as our solution to today's problems. Hold fast to the confession. Hold fast to the faith that you have in Christ. Don't doubt. And don't let go of that confession. Let me give you just a little bit of an insight here to our troubles of the day. That is what is at stake with every difficulty, every sin, and every attack of the enemy denying the faith. That's the crux of the issue. That's what is at stake. There's no other goal of the enemy other than to ultimately get us to deny our Lord, be ashamed of Him, and to exchange the truth for a lie. That's at the bottom of every sin, isn't it? To exchange the the truth of God for a lie. Every temptation of the enemy is to get you to believe that life is more pleasurable, more satisfying, more joyous, and perversing God's plan for creation rather than following God's plan and design for creation. And the enemy ultimately wants to use every sin every moment of distress, every temptation to get you to quit trusting in Christ and to trust in anything else for help and for a solution. And the Hebrew writer here is saying, man, don't let go of that confession. Hold fast to it. Hold on to it. Grip it. Know it. Treasure it. Don't let go. Don't let it out of your sight. You're going to be tempted to let go of this confession. You're going to be tempted to run to anything and everything else Don't take your eyes off of the truth. Don't exchange the truth for a lie. Sin, and many of us would, if we're honest, be willing to admit this, sin has and does stop up our relationship with God and it so blinds us to seeing Him clearly and to seeing Him in reality, doesn't it? And not only that, when we endure difficulties like bad health or bad finances or a falling apart marriage, struggling relationships in our family, whatever, when we endure difficulties, we are tempted, if we would be honest, tempted to doubt and to question God's goodness and God's love for us. Every single one of us, if we would only be honest about it, would say we've been there. Where I have doubted and questioned God's goodness and God's love towards me. Where I have been so engrossed in sin that I've been blinded to the truth of God and who He is and my view of Him has been skewed. We've all been there, haven't we? Because that's the, the attack of the enemy. Let go of the confession. That's the battle that's really taking place. And so ultimately, as we find out in verse 16 of this passage, the Lord extends help to us in our time of need. Ultimately, this help is to help us believe in the confession. As everything in this world that's against God is always tugging at our hearts and pulling us to fall away from Christ and to turn our backs on our faith, here is the one who will provide help for us to rest in and believe in and stand in and trust in the salvation that's provided us by Christ. You're going to face difficulties and you're going to doubt. And you may even question. 
and you're going to endure sin and you're going to wrestle with sin and you're going to struggle with sin and it's going to blind you to the truth of the matter of God's relationship to you. But here you can find help to hold on to the confession. Here you can find help to grip and hold fast the faith that you have in Christ. The truth about God's relationship to you. This, this passage, church, is definitely important, isn't it? We walk through this life. We're not yet glorified. We are forgiven, yet we struggle with sin. We're not yet sanctified completely. We're not yet glorified in God's presence. And so if we're going to battle, and if we're going to wrestle, and if we're going to have to endure, we must know where our support and where our help comes to hold fast to the confession. To hold fast to the faith. I hope you begin now to see the importance of not turning to the world for the answers because they have none. But turn to Christ who not only has the answers to help us in our faith, but who is the one who actually secures our faith as we'll see in the passage. Because you notice what the writer does to motivate us to hold fast our confession. He tells us something about Jesus. He tells us two things about Jesus. And he does so by way of reminder and by way of comparison. First, he reminds us of the incarnation of Christ. You see there, he explicitly mentions in verse 14 the name of Jesus. And by mentioning the name of Jesus, he's pointing to his humanity. Remember the man, Jesus. He's got a name. He had a face. He was flesh and blood. I want you to remember him. And he mentions his divinity. He's also, by the way, the Son of God. And the fact that he mentions them two separately is the, shows us the fact that he's mentioning them in the sense of his incarnation. There's Jesus the man and also Jesus the Son of God, the divine Son. So remember this one. Hold fast to the confession by remembering the one who is the personally identifying God-man. The one who even secured it for you. And then we're given not only his incarnation in the first part of verse 14, we're even given one of his offices. We find here that he is mentioned as a high priest. And not just a high priest, the great high priest. Now his Hebrew audience would have known, no doubt known exactly the overtone of this passage. They knew well the role and the person of the high priest. And they knew well when they would have read this passage and recognized well the comparison that the writer is trying to make between the Old Testament high priest and this New Testament high priest. There's a vast world of difference between the two. And that's what the Hebrew writer is doing by way of comparison. Now just for reminder's sake, we know that God in the Old Testament ordained a high priest who had the sole responsibility of once every year entering into the Holy of Holies and on the Day of Atonement, offering atonement to God for the sins of Israel. That, that was his job. So he would go into that holy, of holy place and he would sprinkle the blood and offer the sacrifice to God on behalf of Israel. God would forgive the sins of the nation and, and they would be atoned for. That was done every single year. The high priest in that role was regarded as the mediator between God and man and man and God in that moment to secure God's Forgiveness for humanity. And in contrast, the Hebrew writer is saying, now there is one greater and one final high priest. 
And like the high priest of Israel in the Old Testament, uh, like they passed through the holies of holies to offer a sacrifice, this high priest has what? Passed through the heavens, hasn't he? He's ascended to God himself to offer himself as the sacrifice. I you to flip over a few pages to Hebrews chapter 9 and you'll find in verse 11 a description, a continued description of this. By the way, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3 has said, here's Jesus who's greater than Moses. Now these next couple of chapters, 4 and on, here's Jesus who's greater than Aaron. He's the greater high priest. Verse 11 of chapter 9, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places. Unlike the Old Testament high priest who had to enter every year to offer atonement for sins, here's one who has entered once for all. And not by means of the blood of goats and calves, like the Old Testament high priest, but by what? Means of his own blood. Thus, securing not a temporary atonement like the Old Testament high priest, but securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, if those things sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If the Old Testament high priest can sprinkle you with the blood of some animals, how much more would the blood of Christ as a sacrifice, purify you to become alive to serve Him. Look at the comparison, the beautiful comparison of the high priest that these Jews would have known about in this great high priest in verse 14 who's passed through the heavens. It's this high priest who has secured our confession, so hold fast to it. Because unlike the Old Testament, here's the one who has dealt with our sin in finality, hasn't he? Once for all, it's dealt with. Hold that confession. Here's a high priest who doesn't offer an offering of atonement, but who is the offering of atonement. He doesn't just sprinkle the blood of animals upon the altar. He shed His own blood upon the cross, didn't He? Let me just for a moment here tell you about that because I know there are some of you here this morning you've never heard the gospel and there are a lot of you here this morning who have never believed the gospel. Sin is a part of every human person. Everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are separated from a holy God under His condemnation because of that sin and will be eternally punished because of that sin if we do not trust in Christ who died on the cross for that sin to take that penalty for us. That's what's being talked about here. Here's the high priest who's passed through the heavens for us and covered us and cleansed us in his own blood he doesn't just walk into the holies of holies and ask god for forgiveness he walks into the very throne room of god himself and secures our forgiveness as our sacrifice that's the whole gist of our help isn't it he's willing to offer himself for our salvation don't you think he's willing to see our salvation through to the end? Don't you think He's willing to extend a helping hand in the middle of difficulties and sin and the middle of struggles in this life? Most certainly He is. 
he's willing to offer up his own body, his own life to secure our salvation, he's certainly, now that he's living in heaven, willing to help us be sanctified and grow in maturity and walk in this life. No matter what the cause of our distress is, no matter if our distress is caused by sin or circumstances or others or choices or whatever. That's why Paul would write, and I hope you're thinking of this verse already. If not, you should be. That's why Paul would write Philippians 1, verse 6, I am sure that of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus does nothing halfway. And if he's willing to offer up his body to die, he's willing to sanctify you. The world's offering you cheap imitations for help and solutions. Here's one who's proved his love for us by dying on a cross for us. And such love as that demonstrates a desire to free us from the pattern of sin in our life and a desire to help us through difficulties and distresses in this life in a godly way, in a biblical way, in a God-glorifying sort of way. This means that there is no greater person to turn to when we are overcome by sin, guilt, and shame and difficulty than Jesus. And the one who gave himself for us and the one who passed through heavens for us and the one who wants to see us made into his image of perfection. And like I said, that is so contrary to our sinful instincts, isn't it? When we're covered in the disgusting disease of sin, we don't want to run to a holy God. And yet I'm telling you, that is the answer. Right in the middle of our sin, your only hope is to run to a holy God. And you can take comfort in that hope because here he's proven himself by offering himself up as that once for all sacrifice, being that final, greater, high priest. He is our greatest and really our only true hope in times of trouble. Again, why is this important? Because you need to understand that you are definitely trying to be persuaded to turn and trust in something else. And let me just take a, a moment here and be personal to you if I can. I, I love you people dearly. I know you. I care for you. My heart longs for you. I rejoice in you. And when I see some of you entangled in sin, I'm burdened for you. And when I see some of you burdened for your family, I'm distressed for you. I care so desperately for you. I am warning you to know that in the middle of your distress, your only hope is Christ. Run to Him. Don't run away from Him. As your pastor, as your friend, as your brother, I so long to see you all free and enjoying Christ and walking with God and rightness. And it's because of that I implore you, don't turn from Him. Turn to Him. When your own flesh says, no, you don't want to go to God for your help. I'm telling you, go to God for your help. And hold on to that confession. The world's going to be trying to get us for the rest of our lives it's going to be trying to get us to go down a path that is only going to lead in pain and confusion and more chaos in life remember the shortcut 
and it's Jesus. And at the end of His road is glory and peace and rest and joy. The writer's not done there. Let's move to verse 15 and pick up speed here. He's not only a saving high priest, he is a sympathizing high priest, isn't he? The writer's taking his case a little bit further for us. If we weren't moved enough by Christ dying for us, maybe now we will be moved enough by His living for us. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unrelatable or distant or unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. First, I want you to note from this passage that we are weak, we possess weaknesses, and God knows our weaknesses. It's identified there by the writer in verse 15. So God knows, intimately knows our imperfections. He knows our limits and He knows our shortcomings, doesn't He? Every sin, every temptation, every weakness that you possess, God intimately, fully knows. It's all known by Him. And that knowledge is not an excuse it's not an excuse to continue on in your weakness. It's an understanding of our plight as human beings. And what makes it so wonderful is that God, who is fully aware of our troubles, and by that I mean our sins, still loves us and still works within us. It's a simple and yet profound reality that needs to be in our minds and our hearts constantly, that when we sin, God does not give up on us. That may seem simple, and that may seem elementary, but you begin to understand the great holiness of God, the atrocity of sin, and it is a universal wonder that God does not abandon us when we sin against Him. God knows our weaknesses, yet still loves us, still works within us, doesn't give up on us. He is patient towards us and He is a persevering God. I can't even number how many times I mess up in a day's time. And not once has God forsaken me. Not once has God given up. Not once has God said, I'm, I'm done. You keep going back. I've had the unfortunate task of training and disciplining many dogs in my life. And they require a lot of discipline, a lot of spankings. And there have been many times in my life where I have thought, you are worthless and I should just give up on you now and let you just trape around the backyard and do whatever you please. God is not like that with us. We keep going back to our vomit like the dog. We keep going back to our bad habits and our sinful inclinations. And yet God is still patient. God is still perseverant. God is still working within us. Sanctifying. You know this verse too, Romans 5.8. God shows His love for us in that what? While we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us. What greater picture of love is there? That a God 
would help us overcome those things which are so offensive to Him. Help us walk through those things which are so disobedient to Him. We look at the Creator of the universe and you realize we're the only part of creation that looks at God and disobeys. And we look at Him and we disobey Him. And in His patience and in His perseverance, He says, I'm still going to bring you through it as my child. If, if you're saved, if you're Christian, God walks you through your shortcomings. What an outstanding thought. So God knows and God endures our weaknesses so that He can bring us into His holiness and into obedience through Him. He's walking through the weeds with us. Like I said, nurturing us along like a child. Look at the word that the writer uses. God actually sympathizes with our weaknesses. This isn't a cruel, distant God, is it? This is a God that when we choose to follow a lie over His truth, every time is willing to correct, rebuke, convict, and train us up in godliness to follow His path. Why does He do that? Because He knows His path is far better than that path that leads to death. And He cares for us. So He jumps in it with us and walks with us through it all, helping us. Now, How does He sympathize with our weaknesses? Well, the writer tells us, as if it wasn't enough for Him to die for us, He has actually lived like us and He has been tempted as we are tempted in every respect, only He hasn't sinned. He endured this life just like you have to endure this life. Every aspect of it. The all-sovereign God of creation submitted Himself to the very laws He created and even furthermore, submitted Himself to the temptation of His enemy. Submitted himself to the temptations that you and I face day in and day out. He knows our weaknesses because he's faced our weaknesses. He's looked at our weaknesses. He has been tempted like we have. Every crossroads that you have come to in life, every decision that you have to make, whether you're going to hold the faith or deny the faith in that moment, Christ has been to that crossroads. He has faced that crossroads. He's overcome that crossroads for us. All without sin. Let us not ever think Christ has an easy, had an easy life because He was sinless. Part of His sinlessness is an earned sinlessness won and gained after victory after victory of overcoming temptation. He did not have an easy life because He was sinless. We could argue He even had a harder life because He was sinless. For He knows the full force of temptation which you and I do not because we too often give in to it before temptation's reached its full potential. Only one who is sinless knows the full force of every temptation. And he stood in front of every one of them and prevailed. So take heart that he's not only willing to come and die, but he's willing to endure the constant battle and bombardment of temptation that we ourselves face. So that he can be a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. I don't want you to think and I don't want you to buy the lie that says that if you fail in this life or if you sin in this life, God is done with you or doesn't want you anymore. I want you to be so moved by God's love and desire for you to overcome 
sin and difficulties in this life, that you would run to Him first and foremost. I want you to be so enamored with His desire to help you that you have no desire to go anywhere else. I want to read to you a, one of my favorite verses from First Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We have an intimate God, personally involved, wanting to confirm, restore, strengthen, and establish us. So look at the heart of Christ toward the imperfect child of God and know that He is our greatest and our only help in times of trouble. Lastly, let's look at verse 16. We have a saving high priest in verse 14. In verse 15, we have a sympathizing high priest. In verse 16, we have a supporting high priest. This is the culmination of the passage for the writer, this verse. We are actually urged to draw near to the throne of God with confidence. It's simply an amazing fact that we could draw near to God at all, but that we could draw near to His throne in confidence is astounding. And that's made possible by this same high priest who passed through the heavens for us, who knows that we need help, and who has secured our salvation in Him, who shed His own blood for us. So as a result, you and I as Christians can approach, we're allowed to come before the throne of God, covered in the blood of Christ with excitement, expectation, and confidence. The very language that the Hebrew writer uses here shows the immensity of this privilege. It's not a light thing to draw before a throne, is it? It's a thing of reverence, a thing of honor, a thing of importance. And yet, through this high priest, unlike all the ones before him, we now have access to God ourselves. You realize this final high priest has freed us from ever needing a priest again. This final high priest has made it where you and I can personally come before God even in the filth of our sin. This throne of God is even described for us as a throne of grace. It's, it's the place where the grace of God flows in full stream. A place where grace is freely given. Where it's delightfully shared. Where it's desirably expended by the giver. We draw near to this throne, as the verse says, for two reasons. One, that we may receive mercy. And two, that we may find grace. It's here at this very throne in the presence of God through this high priest that you and I have mercy for when we fail. We can receive God's rich, unending mercy towards us. For every failure, for every act of sinfulness, for every mistake and every perversion of God's plan or God's creation that we commit or think or desire in our lives, here's where we find mercy. And guess what? This mercy never runs dry. It's also here that we find grace. Grace to serve God. Grace to overcome sin and temptation. Grace to be restored. Grace to be renewed. 
grace to be pleasing to our God. This is the place we are given our power and our strength as Christians, enabled by God's own grace to be different from what we were like, to be changed, to be a new creation. And I want to point out, this is really the crux of the passage in many ways. We draw near to this throne to receive mercy and to find grace to help us. And to help us in our time of need. I want to highlight three things about that phrase uh, to help in our time of need. Number one, there will be times of need. As part of being weak, part of living in this life, we have moments of need. We need to overcome temptation, sin. We need to find faith in the midst of doubting. We need to find peace and comfort in the midst of confusion and chaos. We have great needs in this life, even as Christians. Secondly, there will be times when we need help. Because of our need, no matter how independent your mentality and attitude is towards life, you cannot get through this life on your own. You need God's help getting through this life in an enjoyable and God-glorifying sort of way. We need God's compassionate helping hand. But thirdly, this help, you'll notice, comes in a timely manner, doesn't it? It comes in the very time of our need. This is significant for your heart to grasp a hold of. It's in the very moment of sin God provides His gracious help. It's in the very moment of temptation that God provides His gracious hand of help. The very moment of failure and the very moment of being covered in the filth of your guilt and shame, we find our God is present to help very moment you commit a sinful act and realize it, God is there to help in your time of need. He's there to help us run from sin. He's us, there to help us resist it, to overcome it. And this means something important for His church about the character and person of our God. He's not a distant God. He is an involved God. An intimately personal God involved in every aspect of our lives and like I said, willing to travel through the muck and mire of our sin to pull us out of sin's pit and put us on stable ground. We have a God who's willing to get His hands dirty to make you clean. We have a God who's willing to clothe you in purity, clothe you in righteousness. This is not a picture of a hateful or a vengeful God the picture of a God who is tender, who is loving, and who is longing to take sinners and make them His children redeemed, walking in godliness. So in summary, here's the fact of life. We're weak and helpless, aren't we? And every battle that we face, no matter what form it takes, is a battle to maintain and to hold the confession of Christ, the faith that we have in God. And we have a God who jumps into the middle of it with us to help us hold fast the confession. To help us grow and support us in maturity. If only we will turn to Him for help. We're going to find ourselves in all kinds of sinful situations in this life. 
condemned by the enemy more times than we want to count. We're going to be tempted to have a skewed view of God in this life. And we're going to be persuaded, like I said, to find a solution by the world and everything else apart from God. But we must know as believers that our only and our greatest help in this life is Christ. And I hope from this passage you see that. Because here's the reality. Some of you this morning need to take some time, stop, confess your sin, and ask Christ for help. Let me tell you just from a personal note, there has been sin in my life that for years I have tried to take care of them on my own, and it's only gotten worse. But wouldn't you know, when I turn to Christ in confession, when I turn to Christ for help, instead of meeting condemnation, I was met with mercy. I met with grace. I found help. I found strength. We have a God who wants to take you by the hand and walk you through your struggles. Don't deny that confession. The other reality is this morning, well, some believers here need to confess and ask Christ for help over something specific in their life. Some of you don't need help at all. You need salvation. And I don't call salvation help because God doesn't save us by helping us into salvation. God has to completely override our hearts. He takes dead people and makes them saved. Makes them alive. That's salvation. You don't need help. You need to be saved. You, you struggle with sin because you don't have deliverance from it in Christ. But you can be saved. Don't you know we have a God who wants to redeem sinners? Evidenced by Christ coming and dying on the cross. And you can't have His help walking through life because you don't have the salvation that He freely offers. Today, you need to be saved. If you fall in one of those two camps, confess and ask Christ for help in this life with whatever's going on in life because something's always going on. Or to stop and repent and find salvation in Christ. Place your faith in Christ for that salvation. I want to read to you a poem by a... It's actually a prayer in the form of a poem by an old Puritan, an anonymous Puritan. And I think this prayer sums up so nicely how we approach God for help. He writes about halfway into his prayer. He says, I thank Thee for Thy riches to me in Jesus, for the unclouded revelation of Him in Thy Word, where I behold His person, character, grace, glory, His humiliation, sufferings, death, and resurrection. Give to me, feel, a need of His continual Saviorhood. And cry with Job, I am vile. And help me to cry with Peter, I perish. And with the publican, be merciful to me, a sinner. Subdue in me the love of sin. And let me know the need of re renovation as well as forgiveness in order to serve and enjoy Thee forever. I come to Thee in the all-prevailing name of Jesus with nothing of my own to plead. No works, no worthiness, no promises. I am often strained, often knowingly opposing Thy authority, often abusing Thy goodness. Much of my guilt arises from my religious privileges, my low estimation of them, my failure to use them to my advantage. 
but I am not careless of thy favor or regardless of thy glory. Impress me deeply with a sense of thy omnipresence, that thou art about my path, my ways, my lying down, and my end. That prayer is an expression of struggle, an expression and a confession of being guilty of abusing God's goodness and God's authority. And yet at the end of that prayer, this individual knew enough to say, God, let me know your presence and that you are about my good, my life, my end, my sanctification. That's the right attitude to have towards a helping Savior who longs to help us. You're going to mess up, but you can run to a Savior who will and is about your good, your end, your sanctification. And this Savior, this high priest who died upon the cross for us, will bring that salvation to completion. Let me implore you again with love in my heart. Don't fall to the schemes of the world or the devil and the empty solutions that they promise. I pray that we would all be people who turn to Christ for every ounce of help in this life. He is our only true source of help. Father, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for these three verses that are in your word. God, I pray that we would know you in this fashion. God, I admit that I have too often in life failed and seen you as a judgmental, disappointed, angry, condemning God. And that's just the view the enemy wants me to have of you. You're never pleased and you're never okay with our sin, Father. And that's evidenced by the very fact that you want to help us through our struggles. So God, I pray that we would all come to a place this morning where we would confess in our own hearts before you our shortcomings, our weaknesses. We would thank you that you sympathize with us. And we would praise you that we can draw near to your throne receive mercy and find grace to help us in our very time of need thank you for this confession that you secured for us help us to hold fast to this truth to the gospel truth that you've not only saved us but you are our sanctification thank you for this time god and i pray that you are glorified in jesus name i pray amen